0: Lord, thanks for another day. Thanks we get to be here at church, worshiping you, learning more about you and who we are in you. And uh, it's just a huge blessing. Lord, thanks for your word that we can, we can know you. And I pray that you would just give us clarity on what you're teaching us this morning. You give me the words to speak, that it would be all you, and that your spirit would move in and through us so that we can know you more and delight in you more, because you're really good. Glorified, Lord, in your name, amen. Well, good morning. My name is Charles, I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be preaching this morning. Um, just so you know, you can like say amen or like preach it, these kinds of things, if you'd like. We're kind of a quiet congregation at times, but I want to give you that license. That was good. A little bit of giggling. So, <laughs> yeah. Boom! Ice broken. Um, today, we're going to be talking, continuing to work through Revelation. We're in week seven of a 12-week series that we've been six weeks into so far, and we are going to keep going all the way up until Advent, which is exciting. Um, this summer is really hot. As you're aware, some of you are snowbirds, and congrats. That's great. Thanks for the invite up uh, to your cabin. Uh, but I'm not a big TV and movie guy, but when it's like 110 for 31 days straight, You become a TV and movie person. So uh, I mention that because there's something that's employed in TV shows and movies and books uh, that we are pretty familiar with, and that is the idea of the evil twin. Are there any twins in the room? They were all in first surface. Uh, Caleb, who just announced this, is a twin. I don't think he's the evil one. We don't know, right? That's the whole point. And this idea of an evil twin is that... uh, we, as the viewer, typically know what's happening, but the other characters in the story don't. And usually how it works is, like, you don't even know there's an evil twin, but because of some powerful forces that came upon the, the town for Halloween or whatever, the good, evil twin appears, like, throws the good twin in a storage closet somewhere. That's usually how it works, right? They're, like, mouths gagged, and their hands are tied, and the, the whole episode, they're just going, mm-hmm. And the evil twin then, like, acts as the good twin. And sometimes it's comedy. Like, we see this in, what? We see it it's in Bonanza and I Dream of Genie, It's in Friends. It's in old school Star Trek. Uh, even Kermit. Yeah, there's Spock, right? How do you know he's the evil twin? Because he has a goatee, obviously. And Kermit uh, has an evil twin. Constantine, he has a mole. It's a dead giveaway to the viewer. But, you know, obviously he's evil because of his mole. And if it's a, if it's a female... She always just wears like darker makeup. That's that's always the giveaway. Like, how do they not notice she's wearing eyeshadow and she normally doesn't? But this evil twin acts like the good twin and is deceiving all the other characters. And we, as the viewer, like I was saying, like whether it's a comedy or a, a suspense, we're going, that's not who they say they are. And eventually, you know, the good twin is saved and order is restored. And I mention that because that's really what we're going to see today. This evil version of something good that acts like the good thing, and it deceives those who experience it. And the, so like I said, we're in Revelation. We're in week seven. Um, it's the, the reading today probably made a ton of sense, just at a surface level, so that's great. Uh, and we've said this a bunch, and we're going to say a few things today that you've heard before, and the reason for that is because we want to keep saying them to remember them. But the purpose of Revelation is to disciple Christians to be discerning Dissident worshipers and witnesses of Jesus. So, Revelation is this accounting of this vision that John has received from heaven, and uh, it's a letter that's written to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is like uh, present day Turkey. And so, it's a letter to these churches, but it's for the church overall. So, though we're not the church in Smyrna, it still uh, speaks to us now, all these centuries and all these miles uh, later and away. Um, revelation is apocalyptic literature which we hear apocalypse and we think like you know the the sky's dark and people are going ah! but apocalyptic literature is this literature that's poetic it's imaginative it's full of symbolism the bible project which is a super helpful resource they say that the purpose of apocalyptic literature is really clear and it's to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. So at a surface level, it's confusing. When John Dimitar and I were talking a few months ago before we'd started the Revelation uh, series, we're like, hey, like, I love to preach. October 22nd is a date that works. That's today. Uh, and I was like, great, cool, Revelation 13. Like, I haven't read through Revelation in a while. And I read the first, like, two verses, and I was like, great, yeah. There's a weird beast with a bunch of horns and heads, and this is this will be great. Can't wait. So our goal is to make sense of the text today and see what God is teaching us. The big idea of today is that the way of the beast is deception and destruction, but the way of the lamb is transformation and victory. So last week, John preached through chapter 12, and we saw this cosmic battle that's taking place between this pregnant woman and this dragon, which we learn that the dragon is Satan. And this Dragon wants to destroy and devour the woman, but he's just waiting for this child to be born so he can devour it. Super cool. Um, not not on a VeggieTales episode, actually, surprisingly. And this baby's born. It says it's taken up to heaven, and it's uh, going to rule over all the nations. And this baby is Jesus. And so the dragon can't destroy the baby, so he tries to destroy the woman, but the woman is protected. She's like sent away to the wilderness. And there's this battle between the dragon and his angels and God's angels, and the dragon loses and gets sent down to earth, and all of heaven rejoices, and there's this big exclamation, and one of the things they say in the rejoicing is in verse 11 of chapter 12, they say, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So as heaven is celebrating this dragon losing and being sent down to earth, one of the things that they're celebrating is... The victory is won because the Christians, the believers, were faithful even to the point of death. So when the dragon gets to earth, it tries to pursue the woman to destroy her again. It's like super symbolic and fun, I think. And the woman is protected. And we're left with this dragon, it says, who knows his time is short. He wants to wage war on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And the last we see kind of leading into this episode is the dragon standing on the sand of the sea. So let's read. We're going to read all of chapter 13, and then we'll talk about what it says. Verse 1, chapter 13, it says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems, which are crowns, on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, It's feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it is allowed to give breath to this image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who had not worshiped the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. Since that makes perfect sense to all of us, let's just close in prayer. So what is happening here? This is strange language to us. Now, a reminder, this letter, is, it's a vision, but it's written to the first century, and these churches are in Rome, the Roman Empire. So this, we talk about it almost every week, but the language of this text would be familiar to the original readers, just like if it was, you know, and then I saw a bald eagle. It would be like, America, right? So we're going to figure out what this says. Verses 1 through 10, there's this first beast just to summarize, it says this beast rises out of the sea. It looks like the dragon. It has blasphemous names on its heads. It speaks blasphemies against God. It's described as part leopard, part bear, part lion. It's given great authority by the dragon, which is Satan. And it has this mortal wound, this death, deadly wound that's killed it, but it's healed. And the whole earth marvels and worships it. And they say in chapter or verse 4, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So let's pause. Again, to the original reader, a lot of this would make sense. To us, we're like, this is really confusing. This beast rising out of the sea is a reference directly to Rome. So these churches that are in their location in Asia Minor, they were conquered. That area was conquered by Rome through an invasion from the sea. So they would read that and immediately know, oh, this is talking about Rome, the empire under which we live. And then it talks about how it's part bear, part leopard, part lion. These are images used. Rome was, at the time, was thought to like be eternal. The Roman Empire is going to last forever. And it's divine. And the Caesar, the king, is God. And these Im- they were amazing at propaganda. So they used lions and bears and leopards not only to show like you don't know what a leopard is, but we conquered that part of the world, and we also conquered yours. And also to show how powerful and ferocious they were as an empire, these this image also would r- recall Daniel, the second half of the book of Daniel, where we read Daniel and we're like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and um, the golden bunny, right, from Veggie Tales with Nebuchadnezzar, where you know Daniel's. Uh, thrown in the lion's den. But the second half of Daniel is this apocalyptic literature. Daniel sees these visions, and he sees a vision of this uh, leopard and this bear and this lion, it represents the different empires that have existed and will exist, whether it be Persia or Babylon or um, Greece or Rome or so forth and so on. So the original reader is going, okay, they're talking, this beast is referencing Rome. It says the whole earth marvels at it and it says it has this mortal wound but it's been healed. Now we as Christians hear that and you're like, sounds like Jesus who died on the cross but rose from the dead and that's not a coincidence but also what was happening at this time at the end of the first century is there were rumors that uh, Nero, who is one of the powerful Caesars, he had killed himself and there were rumors that he had come back to life and he's like hiding with his other empire, or that even the the new Caesars that have taken over since are like Nero reincarnated. They're this new version. There's also a a rumor, a belief, widespread belief that because like when when Nero committed suicide, they thought Rome is going to fold, and yet it was revived and was still going strong. And so again, all these little references are recalling um, Bible images, but also it's doubling and tripling down on this beast is told to you to remind you that this is Rome, an empire. Verses 5 through 8, it says, this beast utters blasphemous words against God and his people, and he's allowed to make war and conquer them, which is what the dragon's goal is, is to destroy um, the offspring of the women, the believers. It says it has authority over all the earth, and those who aren't in the Lamb's book, those who aren't God's people are the ones who worship it. So in a word, this beast represents power. The Bible project says that nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. Now this beast looks evil. It looks like the dragon, so it's obviously terrifying and evil. It's uh, referencing the Roman Empire, and it rules with power. So what are the believers supposed to do in response to this terrifying imperial beast that can kill them in a moment? The answer is in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, it says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear, which is used throughout the letter of Revelation, especially to each church in chapters 2 and 3. And so the reader reading this would hear that and perk up and pay attention, and we should too. Verse 10, the thing that follows that, hey, pay attention to this, is if anyone is to be taken captive, To captivity he goes, if anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. So John's writing and telling the reader, pay attention to what's come to tell you. And what does he say? If you're going to be taken captive, it's going to happen. And if you're going to be killed, it's going to happen. Super encouraging, right? Especially in a world in a time when it was with many of these Roman Caesars, these kings, it was normal, it was public policy to... um, kill and make a mockery of believers, whether they were, and they were creative about it. Like one of the Caesars of Rome, they would put like a shirt of wax on Christians who are alive, impale them bottom to top, and light them on fire, and that was what lit the streets. Others would put alive Christians inside the carcasses of dead animals, sew them shut, and then release the lions, and the people applauded. So the Christians that are reading this are under oppression. They've lost friends. They've seen people killed for their faith. And they're told, if you're going to be taken captive, it's going to happen. If you're going to die, it's going to die. You're going to die. But that's not all. It says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. The NIV, I think, says it a little more helpful. It says, believers are called to patient endurance and faithfulness. So in the midst of the enemy's oppression and power, believers are called to patient endurance and faithfulness. Suffering is the reality. Death is the reality. What are you called to do as a believer? Endure. Be faithful. Remain steadfast. Trust the Lord. So this first beast is one of power and empire, and they're called to be faithful, to patiently endure. Endure. The second beast is described in the second half of the chapter. It says the second beast in verse 11 rises out of the earth, not the sea, and it looks like a lamb, not like the dragon. But when it talks, it gives up its disguise because it talks like the dragon. It says it exercises all the authority of the first beast, it makes all the people of the earth worship the first beast, and it does this by performing these miraculous signs. It makes fire come down from heaven in front of the people, and it... um, tells them to build this idol, this statue of the first beast, and it makes the idol talk. And the people are totally blown away by it. And they worship the beast and the dragon. It says that all who follow it, in verse 17 and 18, are caused to be marked on the right hand and the forehead. Why? So they can buy and sell. And all who don't worship the image of the beast will be killed. And it says in verse 18, this strange verse. It says that all these people are marked with this mark. That's the name of the beast or the number of its name. In verse 18, it says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. What the heck is 666? Now, I was born in 1987. Some of you are older than me. Some of you are younger than me. But the last, we'll call it 40 years, have been like filled with Weird ideas about revelation. That's a good way of putting it. So, and, and some of them are like, okay, and some are not. But there was a series called the Left Behind series, which I didn't read because I hate reading. Hated. I'm growing to like it. Uh, and it's like, what happens, you know, in the rapture? And it's this fascination with like the end times. I heard a pastor, Russell Moore, uh, he talked about when he was in church in the 80s and supermarkets started having scanners, which are normal to us, right? You swipe it across and it beeps it. His pastor said, those are the mark of the beast, right? So is it a barcode? Is it a microchip? I know some people have like their credit card in their skin, and they, I'm like, I'm just saying. Maybe, may not be. I don't know. How do you get your credit card stolen if it's in you? So, so what is this mark of the beast? It says that it calls for wisdom and that the one who has understanding to calculate it. So it tells us it can be figured out more or less. We don't know 100% what it means, but ancient... Uh, languages, a lot of times the letters could be given numeric value. Like, for example, an A would be a one because it's the first letter of the alphabet. And it was widely considered back then and now that if you write Nero, Caesar, and beast in Hebrew, that adds up to 666. And so what it's saying to the reader is that not that Nero specifically, this emperor, this Caesar, is the Antichrist, but that he is an example of what it looks like to be this beast. So it's prob- it may be a physical mark, but we know for sure that, even in the midst of not knowing if it's a physical mark, we know that it's a chosen allegiance to the enemy, where the thoughts, the forehead, and the actions, the hand, are set on the beast. This also, this language is also a reference to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 6, we hear God tell his people, um, hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. It says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And then it goes on to say that you should have your mind set on it and your actions set on it and think about and worship God all the time. Teach your children, let it be on your doorposts. And it's this ancient Hebrew prayer called the Shema where these people, believers, followers of God, God's people, would have allegiance through their thoughts and their actions to the one true God. And we even see Orthodox Jews now who like wear things on their hands and their foreheads to represent this. So this first beast is empire and power. He looks like who he is. This second beast is much sneakier. He doesn't look like the dragon. He looks like the lamb. He looks like Jesus. He's not just killing people willy-nilly. He's performing miracles and signs. He's the hype man for the first beast. He's the PR guy. The first beast has come on behalf of the dragon. The second beast comes not with oppressive power, but rather with persuasion. He comes, like Tim Chester said, it's not state power, but it's peer pressure. And it's a lot scarier and more deadly than the first beast. So what are believers to do with this? This beast comes with persuasion. It looks like the good twin, but it's the evil twin. It says that this calls for wisdom in verse 18. In the midst of the enemy's propaganda and persuasion, believers are called not to be deceived, but to be wise. Because those who don't know Jesus in this text are led astray blown away by these miracles that this beast is doing, and they're led eventually to their destruction. And yet the believers don't believe, are killed right there, but they have life forever. And so in the midst of this deceit of the enemy and the propaganda and the persuasion, believers are called to wisdom. And these beasts aren't only powerful and persuasive, but they look like God. If we read the description, it says they have authority over all earth, that every tribe and people and nation and tongue, everybody on the earth worships them. And they say, who is like the beast that anybody could fight against it? And we think all throughout the Old Testament, there's these verses. Who is like the Lord who made the heavens and the earth? There's none that compares. The Lord is undefeated. And yet the beast, the people who follow it, worship it like God himself. Even the fact that We have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this triune God, and there's the dragon and the two beasts. That the first beast works on behalf of the dragon, like Jesus is the earthly manifestation of the Father, and the second beast works on behalf of that like the Spirit does for Jesus. Like, this isn't a coincidence that the enemy looks like God. The way of the beast is deception and destruction. Now, it says destruction on there, We can see that, but even in this text, we don't know that that's the end result. The only people getting destroyed in this chapter are the believers because the beast deceives through power and persuasion. But the way of the lamb is transformation and victory. How? Jesus says in John 10.10, he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So all throughout the Gospels, we see the promises to those who follow Jesus. One is eternal life and life to the fullest now. The other is suffering. So we've skewed it a lot in America because we're so comfortable because this beast of persuasion has lulled us to sleep, to compromise in so many ways, that we have this victory that means we're going to be healthy and wealthy and have bigger houses and all these things, and yet Jesus was crucified, and we're called to suffer if we're going to take his name. And so even though in this text it looks like believers lose because they're promised, we're promised suffering and captivity and death and deceit, They're called, and we are called, to patient endurance, faithfulness, and wisdom. Now, this book was written to these seven churches 2,000 years ago, many miles away, but it's for the church, so it applies to us. It's not just a back-then thing in the first century. It's also not just like a someday-when thing when, like, Jesus comes back, what's happening, but it's a right now. And so what do we do with this? These two beasts are strange and scary and clearly evil, and yet the enemy, the dragon, Satan, is at work right now, right now, where we live, and all throughout the world, until he's finally defeated. These same powers of empire and persuasions of culture are trying to grasp us and take us in their current so that we would walk away from Jesus, So yes, they're in this vision, but they're also at work right now. John Mark Comer, who wrote a book called Live No Lies, John Demeter references this last. Too many people named John. Let's just clarify that real quick. When I say John, am I talking about our lead pastor? Am I talking about the guy who wrote the book? We don't know, right? But John Mark Comer wrote this book called Live No Lies, and if your name is John, I love you and see you, and so does God. Um, And John Mark Comer gives this description of sin, this threefold description of sin. He says there's deceptive ideas from Satan that play to disordered desires in us that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. And so we think about um, 666 and this Mark and these people who are following, and it seems like this weird end times thing, and yet the enemy is working all around us. We can look at government, we can look at systems, and we can look at all these things that are broken and sinful because they're made and maintained by broken and sinful people. Like, I tried to use a government website a few months ago, and I could, I, I just needed to do one thing, right? And it was like, this is the fall, right? Yes. This, is, this is clearly broken. But, so it's big, like, we can recognize that things are broken, that are big and out of our control, and then I think we default to be like, oh yeah, all those people on Twitter, or that are opposite of me, or the people out there, they're under kind of the spell of the beast as well. They have the mark of the beast because they're walking in their flesh, but also you do too. Like, the mark of the beast is this allegiance to anti-God. And every single person in this room has it in them. Great. So glad I came to church this morning. Our sinful hearts naturally cry because of The fall, because of Satan entering into the garden and deceiving Adam and Eve, their sinful hearts naturally cry, human, 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 instead of crying, holy, holy, holy. Instead of, Lord, let your will be done, we try to figure out how to fix it. Instead of, I'm going to trust you, Lord, I go, I'm actually going to be prideful and figure this out. But we don't go, I'm going to be prideful and figure it out on my own. It's just in us. All of humanity is marked by pride, self-reliance, self-protection. And we don't live in a world, thankfully, where we're worried about somebody coming to our house later and interrogating us on if, we are alle- if our allegiance is with Jesus or not. And if we say that we worship Christ, then we're going to suffer and die. We don't live in that world. But we do live in a world, that would be like the first beast, where the second beast is deceiving and persuading Like that's us, that's our society. Every commercial you see tells you you need more, you're not good enough, Jesus is fake, this is actually truth, even though there isn't truth, so forth and so on. And it's way sneakier and it's way deadlier. Like the churches in Revelations 2 and 3, we love Jesus. We may have really good doctrine and really good theology and we may be suffering for the sake of the gospel and yet there's so much in us that is not of the Lamb. Now, the good news is that the gospel exists, right? You're like, cool, this is really discouraging. If you don't like the sermon, um, just talk to John or Jim when they come back. If you do, then great. That was a joke. (laughs) But Jesus removes this from us. When you don't know Jesus, the Bible says you're dead. You follow the way of the dragon. You follow Satan. You're under his power, under his spell, and you don't even know it. And yet when Jesus saves you and God saves you, you are woken up, you're made alive. You're given a renewed mind and a new heart. Your desires are transformed. You can love people in a way that you never could before and you can live in a way that you never could before because of God's transforming power and grace. So even though the way of the beast is deception and destruction, the way of the lamb is transformation and victory. Now we just talked about transformation. When you come to know Christ... Everything changes. Your whole life potentially changes. Your heart is changed. Your desires are changed. And everything falls under the authority of this goodness of God. But it also says transformation and victory. Now, the first half we said those who follow the beast end in destruction. But in this chapter, it looks like they're prospering. And it's the same with the believers. What does victory look like for Christians? Now, obviously, it's Jesus on the cross. Hallelujah! Jesus on the cross means Jesus died. They, a week before, said Hosanna because they thought he was going to come and restore an earthly kingdom. They wouldn't be under the power of Rome. It would all happen. It would all finally be realized and restored. And yet, this Savior of theirs went and died the worst death and the most shameful death you can die, even though he didn't deserve it. So as a Christian, when we think of victory... Victory for Christians needs to be redefined because winning for us looks like losing, which is weird in our society because we live in a culture and a country that wins at everything, at least in our minds, right? Back-to-back World War champs. If we don't get all the gold medals in the Olympics next summer, I'm be super bummed, right, because we lose to whoever got us. Like, we are in a, a culture, like a, a country that wins And we're in a culture that prioritizes winning. You're not making enough money, just grind. Be unethical. Work harder. Cheat on that test, because you just need to be better and beat other people. And yet for Christians, winning looks like losing this side of heaven. Now, again, we're not going to probably have somebody come to your door and kill you for your faith, but we die a million little deaths throughout our lives as Christians, Where compromise is the lure of the enemy, we're called to stand firm and believe and trust that God is who he is and that his promises are true. And so that looks like suffering, that looks like losing friends, it looks like losing reputation, losing money, losing your job, not getting the promotion, being made fun of, all these different things. In Revelation 20, which we'll get to in the coming weeks, there's this picture of Jesus on his throne and all these believers on thrones. And it's like, that's awesome. Maybe I'll be one of them. Just need to keep memorizing scripture. It's like, but then it tells us the believers on the thrones are those who were beheaded for their faith. The ones who are victors are those who died for their faith, who suffered for their faith. In Hebrews, it talks like some were sawed in two for their faith, and yet they're the ones who are elevated and who are the victors. A few years ago in um, Iraq and the surrounding countries, ISIS rose, this evil ideological military force that ruled and took over land with terror, true terror publicly, too. They used social media to their advantage to strike fear into the hearts of people all around the world. And in Egypt, at one point, they marched, I think it was 19 Christians, uh, to the shore of the sea and just beheaded them on the internet because they were Christians. And this story came out that in Iraq, ISIS was going through towns and villages to basically cleanse their territory of people who didn't believe what they believed. And there were Christians in this town, and they weren't able to get out in time. And so the pastor, who is an Iraqi Christian, he goes to this family's house, and they know that ISIS is in the town, and they're coming. It's too late to hide, and it's too late to run. And he told them, hey, guys, they're coming. Like, we can hear them coming. One, if they ask you who you can follow, who you follow, you could tell them you follow the prophet Jesus, which is true. You're not lying to them. And maybe they'll think that you're of them. But what's most likely going to happen is they're going to kill you for your faith. And what the pastor told them most likely minutes before this happened, he said, if that happens, it's only going to hurt for a moment. John shared a story a few weeks ago of Marcus Doe, who's a pastor at Emption Tucson, and his sister fleeing um, civil war in uh, Liberia. And his sister told him whether we live or die, we're still going to be okay. And that is what we're called to. We're called to follow the way of Jesus. That though we probably won't die for our faith in that way, we're called to stand firm. And either we compromise and save ourselves by bending to the lure of the enemy, whether that's, you know, self-sufficiency or pride or money, or we faithfully endure, patiently endure with wisdom and have life forever. So we can lose now because we know that Jesus has won forevermore. He's worth it. He's rescued you. You're no longer under the spell of the dragon. You see the light. You have life. This is all throughout scripture. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. James 1.12 said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Why? For when he has stood this test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We're called to conquer by losing. But it's because we know the true conquer and the true victory. So as temptation comes and as suffering comes, may we be reminded to trust the Lord rather than trying to figure our way out of it or compromising our faith. Let's pray. Lord, you're really good. This is really hard because all around us there's voices that we're not even aware of um, that are lying to us and deceiving us. And it's easy to look at, uh, back on the text and go, wow, they're being deceived. And yet when we're in the midst of it, we often don't realize. So, Lord, would you please give us wisdom through good Christian friends, through prayer, and through your word, so we can know what it looks like to walk with you. That when trials come, and when we are about to lose you know, our reputation or finances or whatever, that we would, instead of trying to fix it with our pride and our means, that we would instead trust in you as a good shepherd and a good father. Lord, we know that one day you will defeat the enemy, and we take so much joy in that. So carry us in the midst of this life as we seek to love you and love others as we're constantly bombarded with temptation and voices that tell us we're not enough, we're not strong enough, we're not whatever enough. And we'll be reminded that you fully love us and fully know us, and that we're spotless and blameless before you because of your love for us. We love you, God. your name, amen.